Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. We're your hosts, Fatima Ibrahim and Brody Longmore. This week, we'll be discussing climate refugees and Canada's role as a middle power. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Climate change is affecting more and more regions across the globe, threatening to create as many as 200 million environmental migrants by 2050. While Canada is seen as a top destination for refugee resettlement and is a signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, the international agreement doesn't recognize climate threats as a reason for fleeing. As such, what should Canada's policy response be to address the issue of climate refugees? Joining us for the discussion today are Professor Alan Rock from the University of Ottawa and Professor Bob Ray from the University of Toronto. Our first guest is Alan Rock. Alan Rock is President Emeritus of the University of Ottawa and a professor in its Faculty of Law. Amongst other positions, Professor Rock practiced in civil, administrative, and commercial litigation and was elected to the Canadian Parliament in 1993 and re-elected in 1997 and 2000. He was Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, Minister of Health, and Minister of Industry and Infrastructure. Before becoming the President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Ottawa, he was appointed in 2003 as Canadian Ambassador to the United Nations in New York. Professor Rock, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Brody. So I just wanted to uh, speak with you briefly about um, a recent op-ed that you did with uh, Lloyd Axworthy in the Globe and Mail talking about uh, the change in sovereignty as a result of the climate crisis. Can you just give us an idea what what the thesis was of that article? Sure, very briefly. The problem is that um, there seems to be a global recognition that the future of the planet is in issue because the um, climate is changing, the globe is warming, the seas are rising, droughts are getting longer, um, food is in short supply, um, weather events are more extreme, and we have to do something about it. So there was a Paris Accord in 2015. All the nations of the world agreed that they would take certain steps to mitigate this change in climate. The problem with that is there's no way to enforce it. There's no mechanism by which if some country refuses to do its part or stands in the way of uh, climate change mitigation, uh, the rest of the world can take effective action. So this issue came into sharp focus recently with the burning of the Amazon forests. That harmed the globe in two different ways. First of all, it released into the air significant amounts of CO2, And second, it diminished the viability of an important global asset being these forests which are capable of absorbing a lot of CO2 and contributing to the ecosystem in a a significant way. And the question became as the Amazon forests were burning, what can we do about that? Can we stop this man whose policy it is to burn out the uh, forests and destroy the homes of the indigenous who are there? 
And Lloyd and I were talking about it, and we have long thought that the constituent elements of responsibility to protect, once identified in isolation, can be applied to this circumstance. And let me make clear what I'm, what I'm saying. We don't pretend for a moment that R2P as such, the responsibility to protect principle that was designed to prevent or stop mass atrocities such as genocide, we don't pretend that that principle applies directly to climate change or stopping the fires in the Amazon. What we do say is there, there are certain principles that lie at the root of R2P, which, if isolated and considered together, can be applied separately to climate change. And what are those principles? Well, when you look at R2P and disaggregate it, when you unbundle the principles that are involved, there are three elements that seem to me basic. First of all, the, the world has identified a global good or objective or value which is worth pursuing collectively. Second, that every country has a responsibility as part of its sovereignty to do its part to achieve that global good. And third, if a country does not do what it must do, then notwithstanding its sovereignty, the international community can take steps to ensure that the universally recognized value is preserved or pursued in an appropriate way. When you apply those principles to climate change, it means that Brazil, under President Bolsonaro, um, must regard this global value or objective, saving the planet, as something which is important and must do its part. And if it doesn't do its part, then the international community has a role to play. It doesn't mean we invade. It may mean that there are economic sanctions. It could be that there's exclusion from the OAS. It could be other forms of isolation or shunning. Uh, political declarations, uh, steps taken through multilateral organizations. In other words, the international community can bring pressure to bear on Brazil to do its part and not to cause gratuitous harm given this important global objective. So that's what we were saying. That's what we say today. And we contend that we're not going to meet the challenge of climate change notwithstanding international agreements about what must be done, unless there's an enforcement mechanism. And we suggest that the three fundamental elements that lie at the root of R2P are useful in that context. And just to, just to bring up your, your point again, uh, you're not advocating, obviously, for any sort of intervention in a military sense, but more, again, using economic sanctions or political pressure to uh, force countries or to pressure countries to make a change. Is that right? That is correct. But let me say at once that, you know, one can envisage a circumstance in the year 2050 when life expectancies are shorter, when forced displacement is massive, and when the governance of the globe is unmanageable, when a country is unilaterally and arbitrarily making things worse by accelerating climate change through irresponsible domestic policies, you can't rule out the possibility that the international order uh, would, as a last resort, in the rarest of cases, direct that there be an intervention physically across the border of that country to stop it. Uh, but short of that, 
You're quite right. We're not suggesting military invasion. We're talking about international pressure to get the rogue nations, in this case Brazil, to behave. The other thing I wanted to ask you um, was obviously people who may criticize this um, uh, idea would suggest that um, the multilateral order right now is not as strong as it once was, that we're seeing, like in the United States, for example, countries take on uh, an agenda of America first. So how do you square this kind of principle in this time that we're seeing these populist movements? Well, you're quite right. The multilateral system is uh, dysfunctional. It's under attack by one of the countries, the United States, that was uh, a principal architect of that international uh, order, rules-based order. And because of the behavior of some permanent members of the Security Council, Russia and China, as well as the United States, acting willfully in their own national interest instead of with due regard to their international responsibilities, the Security Council of the United Nations has become dysfunctional. And that's why we've had to stand by and watch uh, the, the genocide in Myanmar, the dreadful eight-year massacre in Syria. Um, so, uh, you know, the international rules-based system is faltering, and the multilateral mechanism we've looked to in the past, the Security Council, is not working. That doesn't invalidate the rational analysis which produces the elements that I've described as the foundation of an enforcement mechanism in the context of climate change. What it does say is that we have to make the Security Council work or we have to find some other mechanism by which the international order can act effectively. Other critics would say um, that this... uh doctrine would be difficult because it would then allow uh, other countries like the United States or, or around the world to then look at countries like Canada and say, oh, we're not supportive of certain projects and then try to take some sort of action because of that. I'm sure you heard that critique before. Um, what, what would be your response to that? And, and did you hear that when, when you were originally leading the delegation um, with R2P? We did indeed. We were negotiating R2P at the United Nations in the shadow of the Iraqi invasion by the government of of George W. Bush in the United States. And many, many countries expressed the concern that because R2P envisages as a last resort in the rarest of cases a military intervention to stop a genocide, that we were in effect turning a blank check over the Pentagon allowing them to invade whenever and wherever they wanted. That, of course, is not the case. And I think they were reassured and eventually unanimously supported R2P because it was drafted in such a way that any such decision would have to go through the Security Council of the United Nations. So it isn't arbitrarily the decision of one country. It's a collective judgment in a body in which the member states of the UN were able to see themselves. There are 10 elected members of the Security Council as well. So similarly, I say in the case of the principles, uh, the application of which we argue for in the climate change context, it wouldn't be up to one country to decide to take punitive steps. Um, It would be a collective decision through some functioning multilateral mechanism, either the Security Council or whatever else is found that works to replace it.
Right, right. And that was going to be uh, an, another question of mine was if you find that the Security Council has not been um, an effective body as of late, if there might be a possibility to try to form some other kind of multilateral institution that would allow us to advocate. Well, very much so. And I can imagine, for example, a Paris-type negotiation by those who signed the Paris Climate Accord in 2015, producing an international tribunal for climate governance or some such thing, where there would be international representation in a body that was designed in such a way to be efficient, but that would consider specific cases on their merits and would be given the authority to take action on behalf of the collective when the shared objectives of saving the planet and avoiding the worst effects of climate change were being endangered by the rogue actions of a state like Brazil and the Amazon forest, then that tribunal could be empowered to take steps that were appropriate in the circumstances. There are other situations than the fires in Brazil that come to your mind that you can think of that need action now and that the global community should try to rally around to take some sort of preventative action or to pressure other countries to respond to? Well, I think there are, the answer is as varied as the number of countries involved in the accord. There could be many examples. I mean, Brazil is a very dramatic one where the uh, president and his government actively encouraged the burning of the of the Amazon. Imagine, for example, that a country like Canada um, was governed by a party that didn't believe in climate change. Look at America right now with President Trump, who is a climate change denier, who is revoking standards for auto emissions that were put in place by previous governments, who is uh, backing out of the Paris Climate Accord, who is uh, carrying on as though it's 1965 instead of 2019. Any country that significantly impedes the achievement of the global objective of saving the planet as an existential matter should be subject to international consequences that are appropriate and possible in the circumstances. Now obviously when you're dealing with the United States, it's an immensely powerful nation state with vast influence and the capacity to lash back economically and otherwise. So just as in the case of R2P, you don't find it implemented against Russia in the context of Chechnya or China in the context of Tibet uh, or India and Pakistan in the context of Kashmir. That doesn't happen. Um, there's a certain real politic that comes into play here. But conceptually, there's no reason why any government of any member state of the UN uh, should not be subject to international consequences if it is blatantly ignoring its part of the shared responsibility to meet the, ma the challenge of climate change with consequences that are significant for this existential threat. Imagine a country not only continues to allow coal-fired power plants but actively builds them, multiplies their number and thereby significantly increases its contribution to uh, greenhouse gases. 
we're not talking there about a global asset, but we may indeed be talking about conduct nationally that constitutes a significant peril internationally, not only by undermining the goal of mitigating climate change, but in fact worsening it significantly. So I don't limit the application of these principles to global assets. I say, and again, I invite you to cast your mind forward to 2050. I won't be around, but you will be. And in 2050, if sufficient steps are not taken, the oceans will have risen to the point where most coastal areas may not be habitable. 25 small island developing states may no longer exist because they'll be underwater. The temperatures may render certain parts of the globe uninhabitable. The droughts may make the production of crops impossible. The extreme weather events might make insurance companies bankrupt, might make the death toll unacceptable. And all of this might, might produce forced displacement with overwhelming consequences for neighboring countries so that the world has to say in those circumstances we need to find a way to stop this and country X continuing to build coal-powered fuel plants isn't acceptable. So we're going to take action against them. So I'm just saying this planet's going in one direction and it's not good. Right. The climate scientists will tell you we're doomed. And unless we take significant action, that doom is coming sooner rather than later. And if one country is not prepared to take part in, you know, we're all on this lifeboat together. And if one person in the lifeboat is digging a hole in the rubber belly of the lifeboat, so we're all going down, what do you think we ought to do about that person? Pessimists would say that we could never get countries to agree to this. Um, but I know you've referenced already the Paris Climate uh, Accord. Do you think that this is something that countries have an appetite to, to pass? Well, many people said that we would ne never get R2P adopted, especially in view of George W. Bush and his Iraqi invasion. And yet it was unanimously adopted by the General Assembly in September of 2005. Many people said we'd never get an international criminal court. The Rome Statute was adopted in 1998, and that court is now functioning. So I, I think we shouldn't be so unsure of ourselves. I think we should be more confident. I think there's precedent for these achievements. And I think in any event, what we're talking about here is the life or the death of the planet as we know it, human life as we know it. So let's uh, screw up our courage. Let's tap into our imagination. Uh, let's uh, call on our energy. Let's marshal our forces and let's get this done. Just just to add on to this, I know that uh, you were actually at the University of Toronto not too long ago at the Monk School with the World Refugee Council talking about the displaced persons around the world and the refugee crisis that the global order is facing right now. 25.4 million global refugees was the 2018 statistic. Do you see, obviously, the climate worsening that statistic? And if so, can you provide kind of a couple examples of where that may occur? Well, um, the fact is there are 25 million refugees, 
as defined by the 1951 convention, but there are twice as many internally displaced people in the world, forcibly displaced, but they haven't crossed the border. They're still within their own country. Total of 70 million today. Last week in Amsterdam, the United Nations at a meeting called for the purpose of discussing the phenomenon of forced displacement, estimated that by 2030, which I understand to be just over 10 years away, there will be 300 million forcibly displaced worldwide because of climate change. That is, by my mathematics, more than four times the current total of the forcibly displaced today. We've seen that governments in Europe and elsewhere are overwhelmed by the current levels of forced displacement. Can you imagine the world we'll face in 10 short years if we get 300 million to deal with? So, yes, uh, it's a grave and, and worsening problem. And the reality is that if you look at Africa or Asia, many of the conflicts we see have at their root the consequences of climate change, changing patterns in land use, I should say. In Darfur, for example, which preoccupied me greatly when I was at the United Nations as our ambassador, Darfur was in many respects a conflict that arose because of squabbles about the use of land, pastoralists against those who used the land differently and were more uh, itinerant. And as those two uses collided, conflict arose and the government uh, took advantage of that by trying to exterminate a large part of its population. So whether it's Africa uh, or parts of the United States or, or parts of Asia, um, as the production of food becomes more difficult, as areas become uninhabitable, as extreme weather events make it dangerous to live in certain areas, um, people are going to have to move. And the, the answer as to where they're going to go is not quite clear. Venezuela has just sent five million of its citizens in, as refugees into Colombia, Ecuador, Peru and Brazil, with devastating consequences for Colombia, for example, which has been very generous in receiving them, but where the infrastructure, whether it's education or schools or healthcare, is being overwhelmed. So, uh, yes, there's going to be massive displacement because of climate change. It's going to happen in regions throughout the world, and we have to find a way to deal with it. And quickly. Quickly. We've got very few years to do so. So just as a, a final question to you, a lot of young people find that climate change is an important issue, but find that it's difficult to get involved in one way or another or feel as though they're making an impact. How do you think young people who see the urgency but don't know really what they can do, what, what advice would you give to them? Well, the ways in which young people can get involved and contribute to finding solutions are as varied as the young people themselves. Some people will be comfortable studying science and engaging in research to find scientific responses to these challenges. Others will want to work on public policy and get deeply into the mechanism by which policies are proposed and debated and adopted by governments. Others will want to get into public life, and I encourage them to do so, joining political parties, making an issue of these questions during election campaigns, becoming involved, if not as a candidate, then as someone who's advising candidates. 
Some will want to get involved in, in government service, becoming uh, officials in departments with line responsibility for these questions. Uh, there are many, many ways of getting involved, and depending on the individual circumstances of the young person, their taste, their interests, their personality, their personal qualities, they'll have to find something that suits them, that can make a difference. But I'm telling you, they not only can do this, Brody, they must do this. It's the only hope we have left, that the young people with their energy and their commitment that we saw demonstrated on the streets of our cities a few weeks ago with the climate marches, young people with the energy and the commitment to make a difference must step forward and do so. Thank you, Professor Rock, once again for your time. Pleasure speaking with you, Brody. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, that was Professor Alan Rock. Our second guest is Professor Bob Ray. Bob Ray was elected 11 times to the House of Commons and the Ontario Legislature between 1978 and 2013. He was Ontario's 21st Premier from 1990 to 1995 and served as interim leader of the Liberal Party of Canada from 2011 to 2013. He currently works as a lawyer, negotiator, mediator, and arbitrator, and is a fellow of the Forum of Federations. Professor Ray teaches at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Law, Massey College, Victoria College, and the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Good morning, Professor Ray. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. How are you doing today? Great. Perfect. So we're just going to dive right in. Based on your experience in government and your own opinion, does Canada have a responsibility to accept climate refugees? Uh, well, let's take a step back. I mean, the traditional definition of refugees is is the one that uh, talks about how um, people are facing a genuine risk of, of their for their physical safety, and usually we interpret that as as a consequence of political oppression. Um, but the reality is is that if people are not able to, are forced to leave their country because their country is no longer habitable then obviously there's a clear humanitarian obligation to for Canada to participate in taking people in. Um, so that's the general principle. So the short answer to your question is yes. The, the difficulty is getting into the details because frequently I think there's a, there's a, um, a connection between climate, pure climate refugees, your home is blown away, you can't go back to it, you can't go back to where you were, um, your country can't sustain you, you have no choice. And then issues around economic displacement or people deciding that conditions are too difficult for them to stay. And when that happens, we get into a more difficult area where people are, in a sense, responding to the difficulties in their situation and then saying, well, now we, we have to leave. So I'm very familiar, for example, with cases where people are living in a violent place uh, and they say, I've got to get out of here. And then the adjudicators will say, well, have you been, are you, are you in particular faced by a threat of violence against you? And frequently people will say, no, because I'm not being targeted. Um, and that gets more complicated. But in a, as a general rule, the answer is yes, of course we do. Do you think it's because of some of those complications that the international community has been so slow um, to respond to the in issue of environmental migration? Yes, but I think the you know what we're going to see over 
over the years to come um, is that the number of people at the UN, the latest reports from the UN on on climate and on water are, are very, very clear that we can anticipate that there will be as many as 100 million people who will, in effect, be displaced by climate change over the next couple of decades. And that's a huge number. And so clearly, we're, we're going to have to respond in a much more effective way, an aggressive way, if you like, to to this wave of migration, which is which is taking place. As a middle power, what role can Canada play on the international stage to garner more attention or support for climate refugees? And how do you think we'd go go about this? I, I think it's 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 more. Um, I mean, yes, we're a middle power. I mean, we're we're, um, but that's that really kind of ducks the issue because, in a sense, it's it's what we need to think about is. What are we actually prepared to do as Canadians? What are, what are we prepared to contemplate? Um, and then as soon as we've figured that out, we can then go to other countries and say, this is what we're doing per capita. This is what we're doing in the face of this growing challenge. And this is what we're prepared to do. Um, and what are you prepared to do? And, and I think that's the only way it works. When you look at, you know, looking at the, the big response to migration, you know, I mean, in between the wars, in between the First World War and the Second World War was terrible. You know, you, people are familiar with the book, uh, None is Too Many. Uh, Canada did not, did not, not just that we didn't play our role, we closed our doors. And we know that in the last election, there were people who were arguing it was time to close the doors, time to shut them down, time to limit the numbers. Um, and the pressure for that will come and go depending on where the economy is at and the political conditions are at. So I, I, I think when we look at the world response, the real issue is there is no world response. There's a, there's a response country by country. And the question is how do we move opinion in our own country and how do we move opinion in other countries that people can say, yeah, this is something we're prepared to, prepared to do. So what do you think it would take for Canada to adopt, whether formally or ad hoc, a domestic refugee policy that does recognize environmental migrants? I think to begin to present people with the facts, to begin to talk to people about who these people are, where are they from, what are they facing. Um, I think it would begin with uh, conversations in, um, in schools and, and universities and churches and mosques and all the institutions of civil society talking to people and saying, this is happening, what, what, are, we, what are we prepared to do about it? Um, one of the things that's important to remember about the, the response to the, the refugee crisis out of, after the, uh, the Vietnamese crisis was that um, a lot of the pressure on governments came from communities and from families and from church organizations and other people saying, we're ready to go, we're ready to take these people in, we're ready to do it, and what are you ready to do? So... I think we have a very good combination in Canada. We have a very good model of, of, of it's not the government saying we're going to do this. It's the government responding to a communities that say, yes, we want to do this. And is the government prepared to help us and to help us to create the platform that allows us to do it? So I think there has to be a much broader debate. And this program is a good example. We need to have much wider discussion about the issue. The, the issue of climate change is not just about the climate. It's about what that change is doing to human migration, where people are living, what the, the threats that people face and how we respond to that is, is going to be the story. This is, a, this is a people story. This is a human story. 
And um, it's going to be the story of our of our generation, of next generations. It's going to be the story for the foreseeable future. Climate change is real. It's happening. And it's having a, an, a devastating impact on a lot of people. And we need to understand how that's going to unfold in the years ahead and say, okay, what are we prepared to do? Based on your experience in government, how do you think Canada should go about introducing and implementing a domestic climate refugee policy? Well, I think we'd need to have um, a much wider discussion publicly about it. I think, you know, the government might want to think about ways in which we can kind of talk to the public and say, here's, here's an issue. What are we going to do? Talk to the opposition parties. Have a parliamentary committee. Um, try to try to make this a nonpartisan issue. It's very difficult because immigration has has become a kind of hot button issue in in our country and in, in Europe and in, in in the United States and Australia and various various places. Uh, so it's not easy to to do it, but you've got to do it because the reality is is that. This, the numbers of people who are wanting to come and who are going to want to come is, is going to grow. It's not going to go down. It's going to go up. So you've got to prepare people for that. Do you see that conversation happening at the present time? Do you think most Canadians understand this issue and they see the human element of climate change? Or do you think that on the whole, uh, that conversation and that dialogue hasn't occurred yet and that most Canadians don't understand that kind of human element to climate change? I think probably the latter. I think probably most people don't fully understand it. I think that's fair. I mean, that's not surprising. People are bombarded with information in all sorts of ways. Um, But I I do think there's there's an opportunity for us to do it. I think it would be a good idea to get started on it. And and I know the government is often afraid to talk about immigration. Governments generally are afraid to talk too much about immigration because it, it sort of brings up emotional responses. But I think if, if the government isn't prepared to do it, then I think civil society has to do it and start to say, okay, government, you know, you're not prepared to talk about it. We are. And here's what we'd like to do. And here's how we think you should, you should be involved. So what barriers would you say are in place, whether it's our institutions, whether it's public opinion, whether it's our electoral system or our parliamentary system, uh, that essentially prevent the government from taking quicker action on this issue? No, I don't think our system prevents us from doing it. I think, I think generally speaking, it's, it's, it's a lack of information and political momentum. I think governments need to lead, but they also need to make sure that you've got followers. I mean, leadership is not just about saying, you know, we're way ahead of you here. Leadership's about saying, well, how do we prepare the ground? How do we, how do we get people to, 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 to listen to what we're saying as opposed to just blocking out, you know, the, the numbers and the issues that we're trying to, trying to present. And uh, leadership in these issues is, is, requires a lot of skill, a lot of thinking through what do we want to do. But the first thing, the first step to leadership is, is for governments themselves, for the prime minister himself and for others to say, yes, I get this, we're going to have to do something um, and we're going to have to prepare people for for what's coming because we are going to be asked to take in more people um, in response to the uh, the climate change crisis as it as it begins to have its impact. And the thing about climate change is that it's not uh, it's not something that you see as a crisis, uh, it's it's too gradual for that. But the problem is, by the time it's had its full impact, 
it's too late. You then say, holy, why didn't anybody tell us? Well, the answer is we, people have been telling people. But I think in many ways it's sort of like, um, you know, with all this climate change, I'm, you know, I'm going to be seeing more rain and storms. I'm going to have to put a sweater on and I'm going to have to, you know, get used to hot weather in the summer and whatever. That's it. Okay, that's it. That's, so I'll live with that. But actually, it's, it's way worse than that in terms of the impacts that it will have. It's not only the migration that we're going to see coming uh, from overseas. It's also a lot of internal migration will be affected. People living in the far north are going to be affected. People living in many communities which will be, have a difficult time surviving in the face of climate change. It's going to have a very wide impact. So do you have any calls to action, final thoughts before we leave you? Well, I think the call to action is for, is for each individual, certainly in a university radio station, I think, I feel this. Students should think about this issue. They should research it. They should find out more about it. They should consult the UN reports. They should be ready to look at, at the, the, uh, the refugee compact conferences, which are going to be happening in Geneva in December. And that's for a week or two. That's going to be a, an item on the news. And, and then it'll be gone. Um, but the problem that's really been the focus of that discussion will be with us for, for, for the foreseeable future. It's in our future. It's in our present. And it will be in our future. And it's not going away. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Pleasure. Once again, that was Bob Ray, former Premier of Ontario. We'll continue our discussion after a short musical break. So uh, why don't we transition over to our panel discussion? We'll have Rob, Brody, and myself, Fatima, um, just have a quick uh, discussion on what are our takes? What do we feel? Um, how, what are our opinions? Our hot takes. Our hot takes, I love guys. That, yeah. So yeah, guys, a uh, great interview with uh, both uh, you know Alan Rock and Bob Ray. So um, I guess with both these interviews being done another way, I just have some concluding questions for you guys, actually, in terms of how we can uh, address climate refugees. So I guess my first one to you, or both of you, even Fatima and Brody, uh, when discussing climate change refugees, specifically Canada's role with resettlement, where would we potentially resettle these refugees? Because especially with limited space in urban settings, so where would we potentially place these people if they were to, you know, resettle here in Canada? I think um, one of the things that Professor Ray brought up is uh, with the climate change and with changing temperatures, um, we also have the northern area of Canada, which are our territories, even the northern areas of our western provinces that will naturally warm up um, and become more habitable. So that's definitely uh, an option, a potential. We do have um, our current problems with our coastlines um, that are, whether they're facing uh, environmental problems or economic problems as well, um, and the the challenge of going inward. Um, But just having uh, another area where we can develop economically, invest economically, because that's a huge thing that um, would sway people towards that. Uh, just to add on to that, I also think um, there are areas throughout Canada right now that because we're transitioning um, from a manufacturing economy in some locations to either a tourism economy or a service sector economy, I do think that there's a, an opportunity for settlement in those areas to stimulate the local economy. Um, and I think that's that's a, a story you don't hear very often. Um, but I do think that that would uh, not only help settle some of these climate refugees, but also provide these communities with an opportunity to see an uptick in their local economy. Cool. Yeah, so I guess a follow-up question on that is, as Professor Ray mentioned, climate change will firstly affect the northern communities. 
So how would Canada respond domestically to this issue, especially with how indigenous cultures have such a linkage to the land? If climate change is you know, a detriment to this, how do we respond domestically to this? Especially if we're talking about um, settling climate refugees within these areas of Canada that will potentially warm up or will we'll just decide to settle them there. Um, I think the first most important step is having a conversation with these communities. Um, we failed to do that in the past. We're having problems to date, even with the Truth and Re- Reconciliation um, report, even with the pipeline issues. Um, we're just we're continuously um, putting Band-Aid fixes on them. We're not engaging these communities to the level that they deserve. Um, and I think we're underestimating them as well. We're underestimating not only these communities, but Canadians in general from coast to coast to coast. Um, yes, we do have uh, negative immigrant sentiments. We have the rise of xenophobia, uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia. It's all over the news. We hear it. Um, but we're also underestimating um, how warm and welcoming we are and how much we want to be part of a, a global shift towards a, a globalized, interconnected community. And I also think, uh, as Professor Ray mentioned, and I know as Professor Rock mentioned as well, it's also uh, the issue of separating the discussion about um, settlement and climate refugees and immigration on the whole from any sort of partisan discussion. Um, I think too often the two seem to go hand in hand. Um, and I think that having an, the opportunity to include everybody, and in the case of um, Indigenous communities, uh, we've seen with the pipeline where there's kind of been uh, a distance between what the elected chiefs and what the hereditary chiefs uh, and leaders are advocating for and what they're supporting. So consultations that not only uh, consult the community, um, but that include both the hereditary chiefs and the elected chiefs, I think would be an opportunity to really bring about some sort of unity on this topic. Um, so I guess a bigger, larger issue or even question uh, is that we're looking at, you know, climate refugees. The major, I guess, you know, macro level, you know, pol- policy response, sorry, to climate uh, refugee wouldn't it be better to just address climate change on a global scale? So that might it be carbon tax, might it be, you know, divesting from, you know, fossil fuels? Like, wouldn't that be a better solution, realistically, than trying to resettle, you know, millions, if not billions of people? Well, and I just, I I do think that is something that Professor Rock mentioned briefly in his interview, is this idea that there is a responsibility for the international community to take action on the global stage to try to address the issues of climate change. And this idea of the responsibility to protect extending beyond humanitarian causes to environmental causes. But I think uh, it, it will end up going hand in hand because I think Um, and we heard it from uh, Professor Ray, there hasn't been a human face put on this issue as of yet. I think part of that stems from the fact that people fail to see how the climate change issue has actually begun to affect people in a substantial way. So I think that um, addressing climate change on a global scale is critical moving forward. But I think either way, we're going to be and already are dealing with this issue of climate refugees and uh, internally displaced people. Yeah, I have a couple takes on this. I think uh, the first, I I completely agree with you. Um, And the other thing that Professor Ray had also mentioned is talking about we have to act within our own nations ourselves before we can 
go to other nations and be like, how do we take a collective approach to this? I'm pretty sure most people can agree that a collective approach is definitely more impactful than an individual approach. Um, but when you're pointing the finger at one person, you have three other fingers pointing right back exactly. at you. Um, and with what evidence can you go to other countries and leverage them based on limited action on your end? And it's, it's because it's a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. um, my other take on this is the fact that I, enforcement, it's, it's another thing that it's constantly talked about whenever we're talking about a global problem is we don't have the mechanisms or the institutions in place that will help us enforce uh, these targets or these uh, emissions reductions um, and will hold other nations accountable. Um, and in that regard, I think it's very important to then look at corporations. We have, like, we forget the impact that corporations have uh, on pollution, on climate change, on emissions. Um, and we also forget the fact that we have entire corporations that have economies and GDPs that are bigger than nations themselves. Um, so working with corporations, especially multinational corporations, to see what role can they play, whether it's through corporate social responsibility, whether it's through just being a good person um, uh, to see what they can do uh, to maybe lead the lead the way on this in combining environmentalism and economics. And just just to add on to that as well on the topic of enforcement, the other thing that I know Professor Rock mentioned was um, the Paris Climate Accord. That really there was no way of enforcing these um, levels of emission reductions that countries had agreed to. And so his argument with uh, Lloyd Axworthy when they did an editorial in the Globe and Mail was that it is the responsibility of the international community to start um, either through tariffs, either through some sort of other political pressure to start forcing countries to do more and to protect uh, global assets. So I think it's, it's corporations and it's also uh, enforcement and countries as well. The other thing I think we also have to look towards or be aware about is framing um, and the fact that with emissions reductions, for example, we have uh, opponents saying that, well, if we reduce emissions, Canada's only 2% of the, the total. So we even if we are able to get to net zero, we're not making a huge impact. Um, but then if they're framing it in that regard, we have a very powerful tool and it's framing right back uh, at uh, critics, whether that's framing and, and, and that, it, that puts a human face on um, the problem of climate refugees or climate change is climate change is a housing problem. Climate change is a food security problem. Climate change is an affordability problem. Um, climate change is an education problem and climate change is a health problem. Um, so framing this uh, in every aspect of our life will help not only put a face uh, to climate change, but will bring it back to the grassroots level being like, it may not affect you as you see it, but it affects you in other ways. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, thank you, uh, Brody and Fatima, for this like uh, really engaging discussion on climate refugees. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss Canada's role as a middle power in terms of climate refugees. Today's show was produced by Fatima Ibrahim, Brody Longmore, Rob Gianetta. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website 
at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. Thank you.